Good morning, Cross Point. How are you? Second service crowd. Everybody well? Outstanding. It was 39 degrees when I got up this morning, and that is just absolutely ridiculous. We pay far too much to put up with 39 degrees. Weather shouldn't hurt, in my opinion. And in my opinion, it hurts in the 40s and in the 80s. We need to keep it somewhere between 50 and 79, which Huntington Beach does a pretty good job of most of the time. Welcome. If we haven't met, my name is Bruce Garner, and this morning we are starting a new series in the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you have your Bible, open it there, please, 2 Corinthians. If you don't have your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible at all, there should be one near you. In the seats around you, if you look in the rack below the seats, you should find a Bible there. If you don't have one at home, please take the one that you find home with you and keep it as your own and read along with us because this morning we are starting a whole new series in this letter called 2 Corinthians. And as we journey through this series together, the future sermons won't be quite as long as this one. First, I need to set the table and tell you where we are. Because 2 Corinthians, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the very name is strange. Why Corinthians? What are Corinthians? Why second? And this big book that I'm opening and being familiar, becoming familiar with, what, what is it anyway? Well, your Bible in front of you has 66 books. 39 of them promise to you the arrival of Jesus. It begins with the creation of humanity. It explains who God is and how God acts from its first page. It shows you in some of the most dramatic, graphic, gory, sometimes hilarious, often tragic stories drawn from human history what a mess humanity is all across the Hebrew Scriptures, which we call the Old Testament. The Gospels announce the arrival of Jesus. After the Gospels of Jesus, which tell four faithful, mostly eyewitness accounts of his life are concluded, most of the rest of the Bible are letters like the one we have now, 2 Corinthians. It's called 2 Corinthians because it's the second letter we have in the Bible that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians, unlikely Christians, in the ancient city of Corinth. If you brought your own Bible, you, you'll have maps in the back. Don't look at the maps right now because they're colorful and wonderful and you'll be distracted because I'm not that entertaining. <laughs> And I find, it that, I find it hard to keep people engaged. Don't look at the map just now, but later you can look at the map and find out that Corinth is toward the bottom of modern-day Greece. It's in a very strategic place where human uh, travel would have taken people strongly flowing through the city of Corinth, and trade would have been coming from the other direction. In other words, the city of Corinth, in ancient terms, it's very hard to find analogies from something that was occurring 2,000 years ago in the days of the Roman Empire and make them make sense in 21st century California. But for the time, Corinth was wealthy. Corinth was literate and sophisticated. Corinth was influential on people. A modern-day pastor has said, if Paul were writing uh, to... People today, the, we might call first, first and Second Corinthians first and Second Californians, because the Corinthians had used their money 
to be famous for their pursuit of fleshly pleasures. It was an idolatrous city. It was a city with a great deal of money. It was a good place to be. It wasn't necessarily a good place to raise a family, but it was a good place to raise Cain, and the Corinthians were literally famous for it. The city was called Corinth, and you may not have too many associations with the word Corinth or Corinthian. But there is a very famous luxury product called Corinthian leather. In their day, to Corinthianize, they became a verb, and you never want to become a verb. <laughs> I've told my sons for years, let's live our lives as men so that our last name never becomes a stand-in for any particular spectacular failure. You don't want to hear that guy garnered really, really hard, right? He pulled a garner. You don't want that. That was Corinth. To Corinthianize in the ancient world was to throw the reins off your life and just lose yourself in debauchery. Corinth was the kind of place where paying the right kind of money in the right kind of religious ritual and doing the right kinds of things, you could consider sexual ecstasy and drunkenness actually a spiritual experience. Those are the people receiving the letter, and the really amazing thing is not that they're getting a letter, but that they're getting a letter from Paul. Right at the beginning of the letter, you're going to notice ancient letters are like modern-day emails where you're told at the top who's sending it and who's receiving it. Paul was the most unlikely man to be writing a group of pagan, self-seeking, idolatrous, drunken, sex-tinged Gentiles than anyone in the world because Paul had been, in our terminology, an ultra-Orthodox Jew. Paul thought the whole story of Jesus was not only nonsensical, he thought it was dangerous. You see, Paul in his day was a Pharisee, which has a very negative connotation now. A Pharisee in modern usage is a religious hypocrite who demands things from people, gives harsh rules and burdens to people, and he's unwilling to keep them himself. That's not at all the connotation in Paul's day. In Paul's day, a Pharisee was a careful student of the Hebrew scriptures. All those scriptures that told you about creation and the eventual arrival of Jesus. And the Pharisees believed that it was their job to righteously interpret the word to people, make as many converts as they could to their particular brand of Judaism with the idea that if enough people could turn to walk as righteously as they were, then God would act and drive out these Romans and then Messiah would finally come and save them. They weren't expecting to be rescued so much as they were expecting a conqueror to come in response to their own holiness, their own careful seeking after God. They did not see themselves as sinners in need of a Savior, guilty people in need of forgiveness. They thought they were literally on the right side of history and on the right side of God, and they were awaiting His return. So when Jesus showed up, born in Bethlehem from a no-account town called Nazareth, born under suspicious circumstances, to a young girl whose story of how she got pregnant is laughable on its face. Paul thought the whole thing was not only nonsense, it was heretical and was going to destroy the country, take them even further out of God's favor. 
So Paul set himself zealously to the task of extinguishing the message of Christ by imprisoning and killing Christians. He not only consented to their death, he watched it. He thought as he watched people die and be thrown into prison and tortured to see if they would retract their statement about Jesus, Paul thought the whole time he was doing a service to God. Jesus had promised that someday men would persecute his disciples thinking that they were serving God as they killed his disciples and Paul was the very fulfillment of that prophecy in real time shortly after the lifetime of Jesus. What changed for Paul was meeting Jesus himself. He gives his testimony twice in the book of Acts. The minute Paul hit his knees, literally blinded by the appearance of Jesus, he said, what do you want me to do, Lord? And he answered the question and lived it out his whole life. So when Paul writes 2 Corinthians, 20 years have passed since his conversion. And the nice, ultra-Orthodox teacher of Israel is now going to the most wicked of places, a place he would never been, to see sights, endure smells, eat foods that were previously despicable to him, all so that people like these wicked Corinthians whose name was synonymous with debauchery would turn to Jesus and have their sins forgiven and be welcomed into the family of God the same way he, an ultra-observant Jew, had been. When we come to 2 Corinthians, if you read carefully both letters, you actually find out that Paul had a very close relationship. I'd like to invite you to just continually and slowly read 2 Corinthians as we go through this series, and at least once, See if you can discipline yourself to read it straight through or listen to it straight through in one sitting because that's how letters are meant to be read, aren't they? If you get a long letter from someone you love, do you read it a paragraph at a time and then set it aside for six days until you read it again? (laughs) That's the way a lot of Christians read the Bible and then we wonder why the Bible doesn't make much sense to us. It can't. The problem is not with the clarity of the Bible, it's the way we engage with it. And what you're going to find as you read the Corinthian letters is that there is a fraught, difficult, vulnerable, conflictive relationship between between Paul and the Corinthians. Here's why. There's an old corny song that says you only hurt the one you love. Is that familiar to anybody? Terrible song, but the more I thought about it, it has to be true because if you don't know somebody, you can't really hurt them. I don't care what the stranger yelling in the street thinks about me. But the people I love, their opinion cuts right into my heart. Through great suffering, at great risk, through continuous persecution and rejection from his own people as well as Gentiles, Paul has arrived in Corinth and spent 18 months there. If you're familiar with Paul's life, Paul was almost always one step ahead of an angry mob that wanted to kill him. With the Corinthians, God gave him the opportunity to stay for a year and a half. He sustained himself there working as he always did with his own hands, plying his trade as a tent maker so that he would be no financial burden to them. He's like an adoptive father, quite literally, who has given everything except his physical life to bring these people into the family of God, and all he's getting in return, as you read the letters, is trouble. It seems Bible scholars have some slight disagreements in trying to trace the history of Paul's relationship with the Corinthians, but it actually seems like he wrote them four letters. 
after preaching the gospel to them, he sent them a letter telling them to get away from the sexual immorality that was so classic and so characteristic of Corinth. We don't have that letter. It was not part of God's plan to put into his own word. Then he wrote them the first Corinthian letter, and it was not well received. A church that was already fractious, had done things like choose up their favorite preachers, suing each other, having sexual immorality within the church that was actually being celebrated. Their reasoning was, if God forgives everything, let's give him a lot to forgive. He's a great forgiver, let's make him happy. Paul wrote the first Corinthian letter in answer to a lot of questions that they had, and he gets a report back it was not well received. Paul's stock sinks even lower with the Corinthians. He wrote them a third letter he refers to as the severe letter, the harsh letter. That also was not kept for us in Scripture. But it must have been angry and it must have been hard. And God used the third letter we cannot now read to turn their hearts back toward Christ and back toward the apostle who had told them that Christ was real. The second Corinthian letter, which is what we're reading now in our Bibles, was actually the fourth letter that Paul apparently wrote them, rejoicing in their restored relationship. You can hear his relief that they're going to be close again, but even now, Paul's critics are after him. And this brings us into the first thing that Paul's going to talk about. And here's where I want you to see how you think compared to what Paul's about to tell you. Paul had some critics that he sarcastically calls in 2 Corinthians the super apostles. The super apostles were the kind of people who followed Paul around and said something like this, have you noticed he has scars all over his body? Have you noticed he's half blind? Have you noticed he's in jail or prison all the time? Did you know he's been shipwrecked? Do you know he's nearly scar? He's nearly died in the sea? Did you know he's nearly starved? Did you know he's nearly died from exposure to the elements? Have you noticed that there's only a small group of people who he says like him and receive him and they're not really to be found most times? The reason for that, friends, is Paul's a self-interested phony. The reason Paul suffers is because he doesn't live as we do. God's favor rests on us, not on him listen to us. Those were the super apostles and part of Paul's critics. And that actually brings us into the first of two things I want to mention to you as we take this journey through the first paragraph in 2 Corinthians of things that are going to make this passage hard for us to hear and believe that we need to be mindful for. You see, the criticism of the super apostles was this. If Paul was legit, if he really knew Jesus the way we know Jesus, if he taught the stuff that we know, if he taught the truth the way we do, he wouldn't suffer the way he does. We have a name for that, and I think it's influenced all of us. We call it the prosperity gospel. Now, the prosperity gospel you can find on the airwaves, on the radio, pretty continually all across America. Prosperity gospel works like this. You do things the way the preacher says, and God will open up the floodgates of heaven and bless you in the way that the preacher says that he will. 
Now, I'm a little bit behind the eight ball on this particular topic because I understand my hairdo looks like uh, the hairdo often seen on those TV shows. <laughs> I can't help it. This is all that my hair has ever done. So this is the hairdo. I know it looks like either a, a health and wealth preacher or a 1980s anchor man, and, and this is it, folks. I've, I've tried other things. It's never worked. This is what we've got. So don't confuse me with one of those people. They'll say, send your seed gifts, send me a hundred, and God will send you a thousand. If it's a physical thing, send for your prayer hanky, and the sister will pray over it, and you put the hanky on the part of your body that is sick, and then from her prayers up to God, it'll come down to the hanky, and you'll be healed. Now, you're laughing because that sort of thing, which is easy to find on YouTube and the airwaves, is so transparently self-serving. But we've all been influenced by what I would think of as spiritual arithmetic. We've all been influenced by this thinking. It makes sense to us and it's reinforced by the way many people have taught the Bible. If I serve God faithfully, my life will be good. Here's what that sounds like in real life, even if you can see through the nonsense of the prosperity gospel. I don't understand why my life is so hard. Why is my marriage so difficult when all I've done from the moment I trusted Christ is do my sincere best to serve Him? Why is my marriage unhappy? Why are my kids so wayward? We love the Lord, we've prayed, we've given, we've served, and we taught them to do the same, and they're so far away from God, it's like Jesus has never even been mentioned. I've worked hard all my life and prayed every day before I went to work and done my best to get a good education, be of good service to other people, and we haven't had a week yet in our life where we could breathe without financial pressure. I thought God would be better than this. See, that's not raw, laughable prosperity gospel, but deep in our human hearts, it makes sense. If we do certain things, God must respond in certain ways. Arithmetic that makes life good and prosperous. And it's an easy idea to get because whole sections of the Bible, particularly the book of Proverbs, are crammed with God's own wisdom, God's very word telling you what sorts of things lead to an abundant and prosperous life. It's not that God is opposed to prosperity. There's a bigger, deeper truth, which I'll show you as we begin to get into Paul's letter, that not everything is formulaic in a relationship with God. And what Paul wants the Corinthians to know is to understand his own suffering. Because they've been so close, because they've spent so much time, because they've had this tumultuous, conflictive relationship, in 2 Corinthians, like nowhere else in the Bible, Paul is going to open up his heart, tell them about suffering so deep that he thought it would kill him, and he gave up on life himself, and then Paul surprisingly is going to tell the Corinthians why, through it all, and now that it's over, Paul is praising God. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And based on Paul's own experience and the authority of what he gave us here in the Word of God, let me tell you why we can praise God in the midst of suffering. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth. 
They're in a wicked place. They've behaved wickedly themselves, but they remain the assembly, the body, the called out saints of God. To the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who were in the whole of Achaia. That's the larger region the city is in. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now a man scarred, who has been left for dead, who is mostly blind, who probably needed assistance to walk upstairs, begins praising God from the middle and the pain of all of his suffering. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comforts, who comforts us, what's it say? In all our affliction. Paul says, the first reason on the other side of my suffering, what I can tell you, the reason I can bless and praise God is this. We can trust God to comfort us in all of our troubles. God can be trusted because of the kind of God he is. We can, com- we can trust God to comfort us in all of our affliction. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Zoom in on the verses. If you've been here a while, what's my number one Bible reading tip? Slow down. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. You'll notice that in that short sentence, God is called a father twice. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here Paul is telling you a great truth. The Father, Yahweh, who Paul served, or thought he served, rather, when he was a Pharisee, the Father has a son. And John wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, the Father and the Son have always existed in eternal relationship. There was never a moment that Jesus was not. The Son has always been. He is always, to use really theological language, He has eternally proceeded from the Father. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this one God in three persons, just is. No beginning and no end. The eternal creating God just is. His creation is separate from him. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, just are. And that's the relationship that the Father and the Son have always enjoyed. But then Paul says that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is also the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. In other words, mercy flows from God's own being. It's not something that he switches on and off the way we do. Let me ask you, are you always merciful? Nope, no you're not. There's some really merciful people in this room, but I've seen even the most merciful people in this room shut it off and say, oh, that's it. No more mercy. Now you get irritation. Now you get frustration. Now you get sarcasm. Now you get distance. Now you get quiet. The very nature of God is that he is, according to Paul, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. In other words, he is the source of all comfort and mercy. When you approach God, you do not talk to a God who has to be persuaded to give you mercy. 
You do not have to talk God into comforting you. You may not experience, and I'll try to explain, immediate relief, but when you speak to the God who is actually there, his very nature is that he is the Father of mercies and he is the God of all comfort, verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction. And troubled people say, Amen. And I'm waiting and I'm listening and I'm hoping that that comfort will come and if you keep reading, a lot of people lose interest. <laughs> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who were in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, why did I tell you that a lot of people lose interest? Because here's the second reason that Paul snatched back from what he thought was a certain death and a life filled with suffering of 20 years of following Jesus. Paul has followed 20, Jesus 20 years. He's writing this letter about 20 years after he himself trusted Christ and became a Christian, and it's been mostly hard mostly every day. Paul's not an ivory tower theologian. If Paul tells you that God is the kind of God who has as his own nature what flows from him is comfort and mercy, he's qualified to tell you that. He's not an ivory tower theologian reflecting on things that he has not experienced. Maybe you've been comforted by someone like that who hasn't suffered much. My pastor's wife, I was a very young staff pastor myself, but I'll never forget it. We had a young preacher who I thought did an amazing job preach, and someone asked her what she thought of the sermon. She said it was good, it'll be better if he, after he suffered a little while. And I thought, how wise. Some things are only learned through suffering. Paul's here to tell you that from a scarred body, a ruined life from the world's perspective, God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. It comes out of his very being, but number two, it's not just about you. Number two, his comfort is purposeful for you because he intends the comfort he gave you to extend to others. Please listen, Christians, because this ties our whole service and our whole life together. God did not intend you to be a reservoir. He wants you to be a river. He wants the things that flow from his good character to pass through your life on the way to other people. That's why I say some people lose interest in verse 4 because it says that God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words... The purpose of God in your suffering, in part, is to prepare you to comfort other people. And a lot of people would say, no thanks, I don't want to take that class then. <laughs> I'll skip the suffering elective. I don't care to comfort other people if the price is me suffering myself. That's a very human thing, and we've perfected it here in the United States. This is the second obstacle I want you to watch out for as we journey together through 2 Corinthians. The first, I told you, is this 
thing that is buried deep in our hearts that we all believe in some sense a prosperity version of the gospel. If I do things a certain way, life will turn out this other way. Not true. The second thing is a fierce self-reliance and individualism that wants the blessings of God to reach us and quickly loses interest when God tells you that God will guide you through suffering and God will send you through suffering. He will always be beside you. But He will purposely not give you the immediate relief you, of course, immediately want because there in the crucible He wants to teach you things. And He wants to teach you things not only about Himself, but He wants you to teach you things about being a blessing to other people. I don't know if it's been your experience. Because I'm a pastor myself, but I get pastored myself, and the greatest comfort and blessing I've ever had from other Christians are those who have suffered greatly and suffered well. Because when I tell them that I need prayer, when I tell them that I'm hurting, that my family's in a mess, they understand there's compassion and mercy and empathy that immediately turns and they use their own experience not to compete with me. Have you ever had that guy? Oh, you think, well, you're going through this? this is nothing. Oh, let me tell you about my childhood. Oh, no, you've lost five things. I've lost 500 things. Dry your tears. Please leave the house. Surely you didn't come over to make it the suffering Olympics over here. I agree you've had it much worse, but I'm hurting right now. Jesus is nothing like that. Nobody suffered more than Christ. Nobody endured more. Nobody, as Paul will say a few verses later, endured more patiently than Jesus himself. Now that comfort wants to come from the Father through the Son to you to prepare you to comfort others. And there's more. Verse 6, listen to the maturity in this. If we are afflicted, I'm sorry, verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. In other words, as you step up and step out as a Christian, it'll start to hurt. The world will push back. It'll cost you something to identify with Jesus, but as you begin to suffer with Jesus and for Jesus, the comfort from Christ will be there as well. Listen to the maturity, verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you, don't miss this phrase, patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. There it is. God does not immediately bring relief. God immediately promises only one thing, himself, that you will not go through it alone. That the Savior who was willing to put all of your sins on his account as if he were the guilty party and was willing to suffer your temptations without sin and then die for sin as if he were the one who had sinned in your place so that you could receive instead the righteousness of Jesus so that your life and the life of Jesus are traded and your poverty is swallowed up by his riches and your sins are swallowed up by his righteousness. And your wickedness is erased by his goodness and holiness. That Christ suffered for you. That same Christ is the one who is going to comfort you. What you must do now, Paul says, is patiently endure. 
Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And then he's going to tell them what happened. We can't be exactly sure what Paul is referring to here because Paul was in so much trouble all the time that it's actually hard to pin down what he's talking about here. The Corinthians perhaps would have known because of their close relationship. All we have is the text to go on, but it seems to be what Paul is referring to is a riot that upset a whole city and should have killed him. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. That's not the modern-day Asia that we think of. That's another region in the Roman Empire at the time. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us on Him. We have set our hope that He will deliver us again. What is Paul telling you here? That comfort from God coming in the midst of your suffering not only prepares you to comfort other people, it also does something very important. It teaches us to rely on God, not ourselves. And that's the hardest lesson of all. That might be the last lesson every Christian learns. Because I don't know about you, but I'm pretty self-reliant. Had an amazing door-to-door magazine salesman pop over to our house several years ago. You know these guys? It's like spoken word, the sales pitch. It's, it's amazing. I like to talk to people, so I'm always, whether I buy a magazine or not, I want to hear this. And this guy, I mean, he had it going. And when he took a breath after about four minutes, I said, friend, I'm sorry, I'm, I've done this before. We always give our money. We never get our magazines. So I can't. And he said, sir, let me stop you right there. He said, what are you and I right now? I said, what do you mean? He goes, our, our, our citizenship. What are, what are you and I? I said, Americans? He goes, that's right. We're Americans, not Americans. <laughs> Took you a second, but that's pretty good. And I said, you know, on the basis of that alone, I'll buy one magazine. And I did, I did get the magazine. But that made me think about just... And it's what a corny joke, but, you know, good salesman. But that's the American spirit. We can do. We're Americans. Our self-reliance to rely on ourselves rather than somebody else, even if that somebody else is God, is driven, is driven so deeply into our psyche that we come up with silly things like this. Years ago, the army, the army was recruiting under this banner, an army of one. My son's a soldier. He's here to tell you, it doesn't work that way. It's like a one-man orchestra or a one-man choir. It's literally impossible. That didn't last very long, so they came up with something that is really close. Be all that you can be. If my son were here, he would tell you, they're not so much interested in what you want to be, they're interested in what they need you to be today. They'll tell you what you'll be and what you'll do. If you want to explore your personal options and preferences, you'll have to move beyond this organization. 
Everybody should know that, but even the most command and control organizations in America appeal to people's pride and self-reliance. And Paul said, this suffering that was so vast that we thought it would kill us, look again at verse 8. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul said it was beyond us. It crushed us. The language that Paul is using speaks of a storm that engulfs a ship and is pressing it down into the depths so that the ship is about to burst and kill everyone on board by drowning. Paul said that's how we felt. In fact, we felt so beyond help and so beyond comfort and rescue, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. In other words, we felt like inmates on death row who've already been sentenced to die were just waiting for the executioner to come and carry out the sentence. It's often said, God will never give you more than you can handle. It's nonsense. Paul directly contradicted that very quaint saying. Here's the truth. God will never give you more than he can handle. That's all that is promised. That your heavenly father who sent his perfect, beautiful son to the cross, the son who willingly went there to bear your sins and to suffer all of your trials and all of your temptations so that no matter what you're going through, there's literally nothing that has happened or can happen to you that Jesus does not compassionately understand, that does not move the father, not only of the son to be the father of Jesus, but the father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. He loves you. That's the good news of the gospel. Not that you're promised your best life here right now. Boy, I hope not. Your best life now. Better life now, sure. But if this is the best that life has to offer, that must mean that it is a life without Christ himself. Because life with Christ means life everlasting. It means life eternal. It means the life of God who is given to you in his son Jesus that begins the moment you trust him and carries you through all the suffering until eventual glory. Look at verse 10. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. I think Paul is reflecting in this brief sentence on the earthly danger he just went through and looking ahead to the resurrection because he says, on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. No, no matter what you're going through, God is never going to give you more than he can handle. And the third reason to praise God in the middle of suffering is found in the last verse. It's a dense verse. Let me read it to you. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Let me help you understand that dense little sentence. To this point, through their difficult relationship, what the Corinthians have mostly been to Paul is trouble. They've been his critics. They've been his judges. They've been those who reject his teaching and do things like sue each other, have gross sexual immorality, 
make sin abound in the church so that God, who apparently loves to forgive sin, will love them even more because he has forgiven them so much. They've been like wayward, rebellious, deliberately, willfully ignorant, wicked kids. And now Paul says, as you patiently endure what it's costing you now to behave like Christians yourself, the third thing that God is going to bring through his comfort to you is our, your painful experiences are going to help you. Our painful experiences can help others mature and step up as Christians. Because here's one thing I know. Critics don't pray for the person they're criticizing. You should always remember that in times of trouble. You can choose one of two paths. You can choose to criticize or you can choose to pray. Paul says, I know now that God has shown up in my life, I want him to do something in yours. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. In other words, now that I've given you this perspective, that my suffering doesn't disqualify me as a Christian, it actually identifies me as a Christian. Because a suffering Savior is always going to have suffering followers. What is promised is not an absence of suffering, what is promised is the permanent presence of a Savior. As Elizabeth Elliot said, if you're unfamiliar with her name, she went to be with the Lord a few years ago after a long, beautiful, godly life, but the beginning of her ministry was very hard because the tribesman in South America that her husband and others went to was murdered on the field as soon as he made contact with them in the name of Jesus. Elizabeth Elliot was widowed for the sake of the gospel. And many years later, reflecting on those and other very painful experiences, she said, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. That's what Paul's talking about. And when you go through that and you begin to pray for others, they'll step up. Encouraged by your experience, encouraged by seeing that you despaired of life itself, your knees buckled under the pain, the pressure was so unrelenting that you were the first to say to God, I can't handle it. But then because he really is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, he comforted you in the same way that he saved you, that will motivate you and motivate others to step forward in prayer and to grow up as Christians. Here's what Paul wants us to know from this first paragraph of this long, beautiful letter. Paul would invite you not to waste your suffering, but to praise God instead because nothing is beyond your Father's comfort and your Father's purpose. Let's pray together. Can I give you a moment to make this personal and reflect on your own trouble? There's not a person in here who came to church this morning in this or any other service who isn't hurting a little bit. You can tell your father all about it. You can be sure that if no one else hears, he will. If no one is able to comfort, he can. So tell him about it. Ask him to teach you to endure patiently. If you're able, if he's taught you enough to ask for this, 
Ask him that your pain now, met with his comfort, will make you a blessing to other people the way he will bless you.